Would you stand now as we prepare for the sermon by reading God's word? Paul writes in the book of Romans, chapter 15, verses 4 through 6. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Now, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and with one voice. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Christ community. On behalf of the entire team going to Mexico, I want to uh, extend a heartfelt thank you for your generosity, your support, your prayers. The generosity of this church is truly astounding, and so we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Please be in prayer for the team. Be in prayer particularly for the leaders um, of the team. They and I would appreciate it. If you have a Bible, please open it up to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15 is where we're at this morning. We have been walking through this book for the better part of a year now, and we find ourselves finishing up the book in the next few weeks as we head into Easter. Now, as an aside, many of you know this, but the verse divisions and the chapter divisions of the New Testament were added much later. Chapter divisions came in the year 1205, and verse divisions were added in 1551. So while we would say that every word of Scripture is inspired and without error, we would not say that of the divisions, as most commentators agree that the natural division comes not with verse 1 of chapter 15, but actually with verse 13, where we're going to be ending at today. Because the themes that Paul begins in chapter 14 come into this section in chapter 15. So if you remember in chapter 14, we see this relationship between the stronger and the weaker Christian, not physically speaking, but in terms of conscience, that the stronger, those who have liberty and freedom, are to look out for and to care for, and at times even draw back on some of their liberty for the sake of their brother or sister in Christ. It's not a popular message today. In essence, though, we are to look out for one another. We are to edify one another. We are to refrain from placing a stumbling block in front of another and then these themes continue right into chapter 15 as Paul says, We who are strong, in verse 1, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. So as we finish out this section today that began really in chapter 14, you might be thinking, I've heard some of this before. I recognize these themes and the emphasis here seems similar to chapter 14 and you would be exactly right. In our Western minds, we tend to argue sequentially in points. We lay the foundation and then we build up from there as we're making a case for what we want to say. But the Jewish mind was a little bit different. There was lots of repetition, lots of re-emphasizing, lots of coming back to make the same point again and again. So it would look more like this as they circle back, yet they're still going in a certain direction that they're wanting to argue for. And why is that? Well, it's because we learn through repetition. We learn through reemphasizing these things over and over again. And so here in the Roman church, Paul's trying to teach them something in particular because they had some difficult things to work through. 
The Jews had been God's chosen people for thousands of years, and now the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, are included in that? There's sure to be some friction. How is this supposed to work out? So with all of that explained, I want to pastorally say to you this morning, don't assume that there is nothing new here for you to learn. All of Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. So while listening today and hearing God's Word proclaimed to you this morning, be praying that the Holy Spirit would apply it to your heart, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. With that said, let's read Romans chapter 15, verses 7 to 13. Paul writes to this church in light of what came before, Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers, and so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing praise to your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. The Gentiles will hope in him. Verse 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we as your church are gathered here to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that you would instruct us from your word, that we would sit under it and not above it. And may your spirit apply this text to our hearts. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. If you're taking notes or following along with the outline provided in the bulletin, our main point and our sub points are as follows. God through Christ has had mercy on you. Therefore, Accept one another to the glory of God. Evangelize to the glory of God. And have hope to the glory of God. These will be repeated as we walk through it. First, the God through Christ has had mercy on you. I've already given a brief recap of our small section of Romans compared to the greater book, but this is the undergirding truth flowing throughout the entire book. God has sent His Son to rescue and redeem you and I. And this truth is applied in various ways throughout chapters 14 and 15. But here in our section, we see in verse 8 that it says that Christ became a servant. Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 10 that he came to serve and not to be served. Philippians 2 will tell us that Christ humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. So here we see this picture when we're putting Scripture together of Christ's coming to us, of serving and saving and redeeming us, and it's highlighting this mercy that God has shown us that we did not deserve. We who have no, deserved no mercy have received it fully now in Jesus Christ. So Paul can put it like this, if you remember back in Romans chapter 5. He says that while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, still rebelling, still hating God, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now or we have now received this reconciliation. Praise God for that. Since all of that is true, though, how then does this inform the Christian life? This was the turn that Paul took in chapter 12. You remember that first 11 chapters are pretty theological. And then in verse 12, it's, it's applied. How do we live this out? What does this look like in the Christian life? And how does it affect our relationships with one another here in the church? Three truths from our section today. And the first is this, accept one another to the glory of God. Accept one another to the glory of God. Verse 7, therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. Paul here is clearly writing to Christians, writing to this Roman church to accept one another. Now this idea of acceptance is not what we would hear from our culture at large or our society at large. That is not what acceptance or love truly looks like. No, these people have submitted their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and are seeking to follow him in all things. They're not living their lives or desiring to live their lives in open rebellion to his word. Our culture and our society, although they talk about love and acceptance, they truly have no idea what it means. So in light of what God through Christ has done for one another, we are to accept one another. Your version might say welcome or receive one another. If you look back in verse 1 of chapter 14, it says accept anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. That idea of welcoming, receiving, accepting is this idea of to bring into Christian fellowship. Don't withhold a Christian community from someone who's a Christian just because back in this day they eat a certain food that you don't or they observe a certain day that you think is more holy or they don't do that. So that's what they were wrestling with in the church. Who can belong? Do they have to become Jewish like us? What do they have to believe? What matters are first-tier issues and what are matters of conscience? Now, all of this has been taught on before if you've been with us in our Roman series, but the clear truth from Scripture is that God has accepted us into His family. Therefore, we are to show radical hospitality and acceptance towards our fellow brothers and sisters whom God has also called into His family. And we show this particularly in the fellowship of the local church. Now, in light of that, I have two further subpoints, two related things that I want to point out with this. And the first is this. You might not have everything in common with or even naturally like the person that God has brought you into fellowship with. I'm going to say that one more time. You might not have everything in common with or even naturally like the person that God has brought into fellowship with you. Paul here is clearly, clearly bringing correction to the Jew and Gentile relations as there was some natural friction between those who had been born Jews who acknowledged Yahweh as creator, who were seeking to follow the law, had spent their whole life as Jews, and now they had come to embrace the Messiah. And then on the flip side of the church, there were those who had done none of that. They weren't looking for God. They weren't acknowledging God as creator. They weren't following the law at all. And yet, as salvation always happens, God, through his spirit, does a work in our hearts. And you have these two sides of the church who have come to faith, and now they have to get along. They have to accept one another. And is it not the same for us here, friends? 
I tell the youth over here all the time, you don't have to be best friends with everyone in this room, but you do need to treat them as a brother or sister in Christ, as someone that Christ died for, overlooking your differences for the sake of unity. My wife often, lovingly, describes me as a button pusher or a pot stirrer. Now, most of the time I have absolutely no idea what she is talking about. Nonetheless, I realize about myself that I might not be everyone's cup of tea in light of a lighthearted remark here or there. Or even further, my face really can't hide what I'm thinking. If I'm, listen, if I'm talking with you and I think you are saying something incoherent in the moment, I don't know how to smile and nod as you go along. <laughs> Our elder chair, Alan Gunn, has often remarked to me, Ryan, I can't hear what you're saying because your face is yelling at me. So I recognize these things about myself. I recognize that I might rub some people the wrong way. I might cause some friction in relationships. But praise God for a church that accepts one another, faults and all. We can be prickly. We can annoy one another. We can even differ over matters of conscience that make life hard. And you can be thinking in your head, how in the world do they, how is their, how is their conscience bound to that? Mine's not at all, right? We can recognize these things. Nonetheless, God, through Christ, has accepted you and calls you, calls you to accept your brother or sister in Christ. And this is the heart of Paul's argument and how he's tying this practical acceptance of one another back to the gospel. He's ultimately saying this, if we treat others in the church differently based off of ethnicity, right, Jew-Gentile relation, or of a certain doctrine that's not of first importance, or just because they bother us or they push our buttons, we, in essence, are denying the gospel, we're denying that it is by grace through faith that we are saved and brought into the family of God. Instead, we're trying to tell them, no, you need to agree with me on every single thing. And I can't be annoyed by you. Don't push my buttons. Think, for example, of Paul to the Galatian church. Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Why are you adding to this gospel? And he says in Galatians 1.10, am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, we don't change the gospel to fit our mold or to hold others to our conscience. By grace, through faith, is the resounding cry of the gospel. And our life-on-life relationships in the church must truly model this, by grace, through faith. But the second sub to the sub point that I want us to consider, practically, here at Christ Community, we practice membership here to both know who is part of the local church and to model this very idea of acceptance. So our membership covenant is designed for members to covenant with one another in such a way that we edify one another, we spur one another on, and we accept one another as a brother or sister in Christ despite some of our differences. This togetherness there's the biblical metaphor that says members of one another. That's the idea here. So here at Christ Community, we truly seek to major on the majors and minor on the minors. And we have fun discussions about the minors. And what Paul is telling us here in Romans 15, though, is to accept one another, matters of conscience placed aside. And so here at Christ Community, we are truly seeking to do that. Imagine this. How, would, how ridiculous would it be if I and another elder are interviewing one of you for membership? 
and we hear your clear testimony of faith, that you recognize your sin and your need for a Savior, and you saw by the grace of God how Jesus Christ was that Savior, and you placed your faith in Him, and you are not perfect, but you are seeking to follow Him hard day after day as a faithful disciple of Christ, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And then we ask you, can you tell us the good news of Jesus? Can you tell us the gospel? And we ask you to share that. And you tell us how this good news is that God through Christ is reconciling people to himself so that all who repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ and see him as their Lord and their Savior and their King can be forgiven and redeemed and have everlasting life. And then you say in passing at the end, you say, you know, I just want to tell you one more thing. You know, I recognize that a lot of other Christians like it, but I'm just not that big of a fan of Chick-fil-A. I don't think it's that great of food. And I say, I'd like to thank you so much for your time today. I don't think Christ's community is the right church for you. Now, as much as I might like to say that in the moment, I'm putting a preference of mine in something that rubs me the wrong way about you, there it is directly, about you, between our Christian fellowship and membership. Now, obviously, I'm going lighthearted here with Chick-fil-A, but I could have easily upped the ante. What do we practically do when it's a certain end times view that we hold close to the chest? Or when it's over the government and how much authority they should have? What about over a couple years ago over masks and their efficacy? I could keep going and going. What do we do when it's over something we care more deeply about, but ultimately is not a first-tier or even a second-tier issue in our theological triage. Will we accept one another? Will we accept one another as God through Christ has accepted us? Listen, I have thoughts about all of those things and more, but the mature are able to set aside differences for the sake of loving, admonishing, and living life with one another. The emphasis throughout this section is that those who have stronger consciences in one area would be willing to forego their liberty for the sake of the weaker brother or sister. And those maybe with stronger consciences over here in a different area would do the same. Does that characterize us? Are we seeking to mature in that manner? Practically, membership, when you're in covenant relationship with others, it makes you do that. We are united in the gospel and what God through Christ has done for us. Therefore, we accept one another to the glory of God. Point number two, evangelize to the glory of God. You might be wondering where I'm getting this point, but bear with me. Let me read the text and then I'll explain. Starting in verse 8. For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers, and so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing praise to your name. Again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. The Gentiles will hope in him. In light of salvation history, God's people have always been a chosen people for himself. We see this in the call of Abraham out of anybody else on the face of the earth. He calls one man. We see this in the promise extended through the patriarchs and through Israel overall, that they were God's chosen covenant people. And then we see something that is hinted at in the Old Testament, but now given fulfillment in the New, that the promises of God now are including not just Jew, but Gentile alike. Again, Gentile is just a name for non-Jewish, that God's people will come from all backgrounds, not just one. And this is what Paul has been interweaving throughout the book of Romans. And here he makes clear, this was God's plan all along. 
God had elected the Jewish people with the purpose of eventually grafting in the Gentiles to show his mercy and grace to people from all nations. Notice, though, the thought sequence in the text. Christ became a servant of the circumcised, that's to the Jews, to confirm the promises given to the fathers, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, more Jews, so that what? And here you would think he would say, to show his covenant faithfulness to the Jews. But no, he says, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. And then he quotes four times from their scriptures, 2 Samuel 22, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 117, Isaiah 11. And notice how many times the word Gentiles is mentioned there. Why is this important? Because for the Jews, we know this, but they only had the Old Testament as their scriptures. That's what they acknowledged. New Testament was still in process. But the Jewish division of the Old Testament was law, prophets, writings. That's how they summarized the Old Testament. And where does Paul expertly quote from here? Law, Deuteronomy. Prophets, Samuel and Isaiah, former and latter. Writings, the Psalms. He quotes from the entirety of their scriptures in a representative way. And do you see what he's doing? He's saying to the Jewish side of the church, accept them, accept these Gentiles, because really the entire scope of redemption history, the entirety of the scriptures testifies to the inclusion of the Gentiles in order to unite all people under his rule and thus bring glory to God's name. This is big. He's saying, put aside those petty squabbles and view what God is doing in terms of this grand sweep of history. And if you truly understand that, then that reality will motivate you in how you treat one another. This has been God's plan all along. When I come to see God's plan of redemption, I'm motivated to pursue unity with my brother and sister for the sake of the glory of God. But my point is that we are to evangelize to the glory of God. That's point number two, evangelize to the glory of God. And the reason for this is the repeated refrain of the Gentiles coming to praise God for his mercy. This is salvation mercy. If you are a Christian, this is what you have experienced. This is Ephesians 2 for us. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is true of us before Christ, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God intervened. This God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. So if this is a part of the purpose for which Christ came, to redeem sinners from all nations, do we not see then, if we're trying to put these pieces together, do we not see how the discipleship of all people, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and then the grafting in of the Gentiles here in Romans 15, how it all fits into God's plan for the nations. We are to be evangelizing here and throughout the world, proclaiming the news of what Christ has done so that the Gentiles and the Jews might rejoice that the Messiah has come. So let me talk about another subpoint here, going to the nations first, and then evangelism in our local context. First is missions. In light of the Great Commission, 
in light of this passage that shows the focal point of salvation history and numerous other passages throughout the New Testament, and in light of the need of those who haven't yet heard, of those places that need churches established and those new believers who need to be built up and trained and strengthened, in light of the commission and in light of the need, we are to be a people who both go and send. We go ourselves from short-term trips to medium trips to indefinite trips, We recognize what God through Christ has done for us. We recognize that the greatest news someone could ever hear is the gospel. And we recognize that we have this one life to live to the glory of God. And we allow those things to motivate us in our desire to go. My prayer constantly, Christ's community, is that apart from the missionaries that we've already sent, their pictures are in the back wall of the church, that we would be growing our own missionaries right here in this church. Those who would count the cost and go. I pray that scary prayer for my own kids. I pray it for your kids. I'm sorry. And I pray it for the youth as well. We want to be a sending church that seeks to partner with other churches and sending people to reach the nations for Christ. That means practically, mothers and fathers, that we teach our young people about the need of the nations about God's purpose with the gospel going forth. We teach that to them. And we teach them that all of life is to be lived to the glory of God. And so if God calls them to go, we urge them on as a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And though we are tearful at being apart for so long, we trust that in light of eternity, it is but a blink in the eye. We teach that to this next generation. And if God calls them to stay here, calls them to be an engineer or a plumber or a teacher or a stay-at-home mom or something else, we teach them what it means to live sacrificially and to give and support to those who are going. One pastor writes, you have three choices when it comes to world missions. Be a joyful, sacrificial goer. Be a joyful, sacrificial sender. Or be disobedient. And I agree wholeheartedly. We model what it means for them that we might not get to do something extra because our family supports this family that lives overseas. We model to our family and our friends using our vacation time that we hold so dearly to go on a short-term trip like some of my leaders are doing for Mexico this week. Because in light of our comfort-driven culture, we delight in that sacrifice and we want our families and our friends to see it. We teach them that the cost is worth it. And in speaking with the missions team and speaking for the pastors as well, we desire to do more short-term trips here, both to visit our missionaries and to form and build other partnerships we can develop. We want to be a sending church in all forms, sending our people long-term, medium-term, and short-term to be a part of the kingdom of God outside of Idaho Falls. So as more information comes out in the next year or two, even of a missions conference that we're hoping to host here where our current supported missionaries are coming in for it and we get to hear and glean from them, be asking God to show you how you might be involved, what you might be able to go and be a part of. Maybe the vacation for that year ends up being a missions trip. Sure, you'll be exhausted physically, but spiritually you'll be encouraged like never before. So we want to be a part of the kingdom of God elsewhere, but this leads me to my other subpoint. Lots of subpoints today. We want to be a part of the kingdom of God here. So that's evangelism and outreach. We don't want eyes and hearts that are looking so much elsewhere that we neglect the evangelistic opportunities here. Friends, the reality is is that those who don't know Christ, 
those who are not clothed with the righteousness of Christ, when he comes again in judgment, they are going to hell. Sometimes we like to play the what-if game. We like to think about exceptions. But the clear teaching of the New Testament is that is what's going to happen. And we have to allow that to motivate us in our current evangelism. We have to allow that to motivate us in our current evangelism. We cannot neglect the day-to-day people right in front of us. For me, missions and local evangelism, it's a both-and. It is not an either-or. We are called to proclaim this news, that the root of Jesse has come, and he has risen to rule all people, and that God is calling all people everywhere to repent and trust in his Son. So we must proclaim this here to our neighbors and our co-workers and our friends and our families. And yes, we support, but we don't just support with our checkbooks. We ask that God would do the hard work of growing us personally in our boldness and in our evangelism. And maybe you're frightened of this. I get that completely. Fear of man plagues us all in different ways. We have some classes uh, offered periodically that can help evangelism and outreach. I read a book recently called When People Are Big and God Is Small that was excellent. I highly recommend it. When People Are Big and God Is Small that will help you think through your own fear of man. Likewise, I think discipling and accountability relationships with one or two other people are vital with this as you intentionally invite people into your life to ask you, who have you been sharing the gospel with lately? I'll tell you this, the one prayer of mine that God always loves to answer is that he would give me boldness in my evangelism. I pray it, and I kid you not, we will meet someone at the park the next day with my family, and I feel that fear of man creeping up in my stomach, and I don't want to do it, and the Spirit's prompting me, like, you prayed for this yesterday, Ryan. And then I tell them I'm a pastor, and I'm like, we have to do this, don't we? So the simple prayer of God, help me to recognize opportunities to share the good news of your son. That is a simple prayer that you can pray that the Lord will answer. God, help me to recognize opportunities to share the good news of your son. It's going to be frightening, be terrifying in one sense, but the Lord will work through it. Trust him and trust the Spirit to bring new life to hearts. We have awesome people on both the missions and the outreach teams who would be glad to talk to you more about what they are doing. Feel free to reach out and we will get you plugged in with them. But the repeated refrain that I put in all three points this morning is that all of this is done to the glory of God. This mercy that he has shown us motivates us in these truths all to his praise and glory. So look back through the text. Look at verses 9 and 10. So the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy, so that there will be praise amongst the Gentiles. I will sing praise to your name. Verse 10, rejoice, you Gentiles. Praise the Lord, you Gentiles. Let all people praise him. Missions and evangelism is at the heart of these quotations that all people, both far and near, both there and here, might acknowledge God and who He is. And not only acknowledge Him, but praise Him. Not only acknowledge that God exists, but come to say, yes, this awesome God does exist, and He has done something for me by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, and therefore I've trusted in His Son, and I want to live every single day of my life following after Him. Many years ago, Pastor John Piper famously wrote this quote, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. That's why we go. 
And that's what Paul is trying to show us here. The prophecies of old speak of the Gentiles coming to faith, people from all nations coming to faith to praise and rejoice in the things of God. And when we see that big picture taking place, we get to delight in being a part of it. Point number three, have hope to the glory of God. Have hope to the glory of God. In light of God through Christ showing us mercy, undeserved mercy, we are to accept one another. We are to be a part of God's gospel going to the nations through evangelism and missions, and we are to have hope to the glory of God. Why are we to have hope? Well, I think three verses throughout the larger section speak to this. Look back at verse 4. For whatever was written in the past, the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. We might have hope in this Christian life that we are walking through in this fallen world. We might have hope that even though life in this world is difficult, we read God's Word and we're reminded of His truths and what He has done for us. We're reminded of all that was written was for our hope. That we might see the wonderful works of God in the world and the lives of His people and we might have hope. Second, verse 12 And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. The Gentiles will hope in him. Not just Jews hoping in the Messiah, but us hoping in this Messiah. And our third and final verse, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because of our relationship with Christ, because of what he's done for us, we of all people in this world have hope. Christians should be the most hopeful people in the world. We have a spirit-given, Christ-assured hope. And Paul in this section wants us to see that our God is a God of hope. But the question comes, hope in what? How do we receive this hope? Well, the resounding answer throughout Romans and the entirety of the New Testament is that we would hope in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is, as Paul quotes from Isaiah, the root of Jesse, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, the one in whom they will hope in. And Paul can say in verse 13, you will overflow with this hope as you believe. As you have faith that Christ is the Messiah, and as you walk with Him day by day, trusting in faith with Him day by day that He's truly your Savior, that He is truly your strength, the Spirit produces a hope in you no matter the circumstances. So let's put all of these pieces together. The Christian hopes in Christ in every moment of life. The Christian hopes in Christ in every moment of life. The Christian will say, Jesus Christ is my hope yesterday, today, and forever. He is my hope for eternal life, and he's my hope in the midst of this life. He is my hope for my struggling marriage. He's my hope that the days that I hate going to my job, the moments I feel alone or forgotten, the times I feel distant from my kids, he is my hope in all things. He is the hope of the world. And then we cling to that. We hold on to it. We allow our thoughts to inform our feelings, and we count it to be true. That He is our hope, and nothing can shake us from that. Do we live in light of this hope? That's the question that each of us has to ask ourselves. Do we live in light of that? Or do we find ourselves really easily being overcome with the burdens of life, the depressing news of what's happening in the culture or the world at large, 
the sufferings of millions around the world, the difficulties that we ourselves face day in and day out? Are we characterized by hope in all of that? Or lately have we become a little jaded, a little bitter, a little frustrated, hating others, not feeling much hope because ultimately I would say our focus is on ourselves or some other problem that exists rather than on Jesus Christ. Listen, I'm not telling you to go through life with rose-colored glasses. In a fallen world, evil is real. Sin and suffering and the effects of it are horrible and messy, and there are legitimate struggles that many of you are walking through right this moment. But what Paul is telling this Roman church, who is fighting for unity amidst the Jew-Gentile friction and division, and who is feeling the persecution from the culture, and in the coming years after this letter would feel it even more, what he's reminding them of is to not lose their hope. Christianity is not about living in a fairy tale fantasy. We don't just come into this room to gather together, to assemble together, some form of escapism from the world. That's not Christianity. No, Christians more than anyone are realists. We are realists because we know the truth of God and His Word. We understand the effects of sin and depravity, and so we see that side of the world that's happening. On the other side, we see and understand grace and love and beauty as all of it coming from Him. And so we look at this world around us and we look at all of it. We take in the good and the bad and the suffering and the beauty, the moments in the valley and the moments on the mountaintop, and we experience all of that this side of eternity. Yet, the Christian looks at it through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And because of that, we always have hope, no matter what. We have hope because we know the God of hope. We have hope because we know the giver of hope, the one in whom all people are called to hope in. So to the person who's here and you would not say that you're a Christian and you find yourself uh, gathered with us here this morning, maybe a friend or family member brought you, I pray that you would consider where your hope lies. Maybe you think nothing happens after you die. Maybe you think you simply cease to exist altogether. Well, God through his word would tell us that he has put eternity into our hearts. What that means is that ultimately when we search We pray and we read this word. We know that we were created for something more. We don't just cease to exist. There's a whole nother life after this. So maybe God through his spirit is telling you that this morning. Yet you don't have hope. You have no hope. You have no identifiable anchor. I want to tell you that this God we serve offers hope to you. He offers you immense hope. But it's on his terms and not yours. You'll have to embrace his son Jesus Christ and what he did for you. It's the only way to come to him. That you have to recognize that what he did is enough and that in and of yourself you are not good enough. None of us are. That's why we're here gathered together. None of us are, but we turn to Christ and we realize that hope that he offers. So if you have questions about that, ask somebody that you maybe came with or ask somebody around you. Even at the end of the service, there'll be people down here that would be willing to pray with you and they would tell you of the hope that is within them. And my fellow saints here at Christ Community, this passage calls us to accept one another. It calls us to proclaim this gospel to our neighbors and to those who have yet to hear. And it calls us to press on in faith so that we may overflow with hope. But if you've been struggling to feel hopeful lately, my simple reminder to you would be to continue to look to the finished work of Christ. That he has called you his own. That he will never leave you nor forsake you. 
and that he has promised that he is coming again, and you will rule and reign with him in eternity. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. May that motivate us in every area of life as we remember the mercy that we have been shown. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for Jesus Christ, your Son, who enables us to be able to know you. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you that he died in our place, and we praise you that he did not stay dead, that he rose again. Father, we, many of us in here, we know that reality, and we desire that others would come to know that reality. And so we trust your Spirit to work, that you would open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears, and that you would bring new life to deadened hearts. Pray that something here would be pricking the heart of the unbeliever, that they might be thinking on it throughout this week. And Father, I pray that you would help us as a church to truly know what it means to accept one another, faults and all, that you would help us to be mindful of missions and evangelism and our need to go and proclaim both uh, near and far. And Father, that you would help us in the midst of life in a fallen world to have hope no matter the circumstances. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.